on today's show. We've overly relied on fixed ethnic characterizations. And I think we have to move beyond that. And, and I think it's, it's done a lot of harm in church life in, in a lot of different ways beyond missiological conversation. But I think when we do that, I mean, it's, it's really just stereotyping is what we're doing. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, joined by Scott Dunford, pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. As Scott, we're digging into the mailbag today. We've got a letter from a Sarah in Indonesia, and it's too long to read on the air, but she brought up a good question that actually is one that you and I have talked about a good handful of times. Uh, at the time of this recording right now, Scott, we're getting ready to head to the Radius International Missiology Conference in Matthews, North Carolina. And we love that model. We love the model focused on long-term church planting, doing the hard thing, acquiring culture, language, focusing on doing all of that biblically to see a healthy, self-sustaining church that's focused on gospel preaching form in a community where, where it's least reached, where there's minimal, if any, access to the gospel at all. But one of the questions that we've talked about, and this is what Sarah brought up in her email, is what does that look like in an urban context? Mm -hmm. And our friends like Brooks and Brad Buser, they grew up in a new tribes model where you're doing this all on the fringes of society. What does it look like to implement some of that in an urban setting? And we've talked about that, but we haven't really ever fully fleshed that out. And Sarah wrote to us and we dialogued a little bit and she seems to know what she's talking about. So I, I said... Sarah, is there anyone that you know that might be a guest who would be knowledgeable in this area? And she introduced us to the person we're about to talk to today, right? Well, I'm very interested in this. I'm in an urban setting. Some of the issues we're going to talk about today are relevant to my setting and what I'm struggling with even here in the United States. So I'm really excited to introduce to our guests and really to us too for the first time, Dr. Michael Crane. Uh, Michael loves the church. He loves cities. He's lived in many cities around the world, global cities like Taipei, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Manila, and even the Bay Area here in San Francisco. Uh, he serves as a faculty at two different seminaries and is co-director of Radius Global Cities Network, urban research think tank that assists churches in seeking the welfare of the city. In addition, he's involved in training and equipping church planters through city to city. He's contributed a number of books and articles related to the city. So, Michael, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you on here. Anything that I missed in that bio? And uh, and we'd love to just have you share a little bit more with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to be on here. I'm a fan of the, the podcast, so it's a treat for me. It's always a little weird when someone says uh, they're a fan because we just, Alex and I think we're just having a conversation. We're always kind of shocked when someone's like, we listen to you sometimes. That's awesome. Whenever someone tells me like, oh, I've listened to every episode, I'll say, well, you've listened to more than I have then. <laughs> there you go. But I love the idea of helping people think through these things and processing. I'm discouraged when we, we go about mission unreflectively. And as you know, I mean, you're you're in the middle of it. There's a lot of discussion, and that, I think that's good. I'm really thankful for that. I, I'm thankful that there isn't just, like you just said, a, we just do what we do, and there's no one stopping and thinking about it. Uh, we also don't want to just be like critics on the sideline, just casting stones without actually sure. doing something. And I'm excited to talk to you because you're you're in the middle of it. You're living and, and working in cities. I want to just start off with that question. What makes cities unique missiologically? 
Are they the same as the rural places that we hear about? What makes cities unique missiologically? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question that I would love to take hours to expound on. But I mean, the short answer to that question is, yes, they are unique. And what makes cities unique, I think it boils down to a number of factors. But I think the key one is, at the end of the day, cities bring together diversity. And in rural places, there are exceptions to this, of course, but in rural places, usually you're dealing with more homogeneity. And so the sameness, Mm -hmm. which just offers some opportunities that you just don't have in cities. And so I think years ago, Paul Hebert talked about just um, the terms are the opposite of what you might think they are, complex societies and simplex societies. But cities are simplex societies in that you go, you know, out to a store to to buy a newspaper, if anyone buys newspapers anymore, and you're dealing with that person just for that task. And then you go to the next place and you deal with that person for that task. Whereas in a small village, your uncle is probably the one giving you the newspaper and also maybe, you know, the person that's coaching your soccer league or whatever it is. And so you're the the complex interactions means that you have this tightly webbed social network that it just influences how you do ministry and this vast sea of simplex relationships means that everyone has shallower relationships and most of what we do is shallow in in a urban context and so for the church that means you have to kind of push through that a little bit more and um, forge through, create some relationships where they're not. Well, one of the challenges, and this is where we started the conversation here today, is taking a people group focused model and importing that into an urban context. Yeah, I recently shared on the show, I had a missionary reach out to me uh, within the last year saying, you know, what do I do in this situation? Because we've been told we can only target this one people group and yet we're surrounded by lost people everywhere. You know, is it racist for only targeting this ethnicity and not even talking to other people, right? So what does that look like? Does that model have value in an urban context? And if so, how do you deal with some of the complexities of that? I don't think we throw it completely out, but I think it does need some rethinking. My wife and I started out in a, a people group focus in Southeast Asia in a more rural area. And I mean, we don't regret it. It was a people group that was, you know, they shared a border with a people group that was largely Christian. And yet, because of the animosity between those groups, the gospel had not crossed that border. So I, I mean, I still believe that it was important to go to that area with the gospel. And yet, I also noticed that that group had a lot of people in a large city nearby, and that there were all of these different people groups that were in that city. But when I go to that city, what I found was I would meet someone and they would say, oh, my mom is this, my dad is this, and they didn't fit our people group categories very neatly. They're in the city, they tended to operate with more the trade language or the national language rather than their people group language. The things that they identified with culturally maybe were subculture type things, you know, 
they're into a certain kind of music or they, you know, love bicycling or whatever it is. And so just the ways people relate to each other, I mean, just changes and that changes just their cultural fiber. And so that breaks down that people group focus. If you're going to use that people group focus in that city, it's going to be really hard. And so what I saw people doing, cross-cultural workers doing, was they would then go out into the village. They would live in that big city, go out into the village to find that people group because that's what their their task was. And then the millions that are in the city get get left unaddressed, really. So that's the dilemma. I don't know if I answered the question, but that's what drove me to this. I think you did, and I think you highlight the complexity of the situation. I remember years ago reading a book called Oasis Identities about a certain people group, and they charted how even their self-reflection over time changed. You know, they went from identifying primarily related to their oasis and where they lived to the pan-nationality of their people group to the pan-nationality of their ethnicity, which went across several country borders to, you know, and it shifted over time and how people even reflected about themselves. You know, I have a long-term veteran missionary friend who served in Papua New Guinea for many, many years. He's just kind of right now on the edge of retirement. And with Ethnos 360, focusing on a people group, did all the language translation, did all of that. But then when he moved into the the city, shifted because for so many years, they had ignored the trade language as inadequate in gospel presentation. But as he's living in the city, he realizes there's whole generations of these urban young people who really only function in their trade language and they don't right. really function much. And then living in the city here, um, and I don't, when I say the city, I don't mean San Francisco. If anyone lives in the Bay Area and they talk about the city, they're talking about San Francisco, not Fremont or Oakland. But here in Fremont, you know, and I interact with my kids' friends, like their ethnicities are complicated. You know, their, right. their dad might be from Bangladesh. Their mom might be from China. They met in Japan. The kids have never lived anywhere but America. They're not just Bangladeshi. You know, they're not yeah. just Han. You know, they're, and really the truth is, they're American, but they're they're more like third culture kids uh, in so many ways that to say we're only going to target this or target that, you can target grandmas and grandpas that way, but the kids, they don't fit those those molds. Yeah, exactly. Is that what you're experiencing there when were you serving? Yes, and I've seen it in a variety of, of places, but at the same time, uh, we've lived in a city with a lot of refugees. And some of those refugee communities, they they stay really tightly put in their community. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I think like wherever Somalis are, I think Somalis really try hard to protect their their community. And so I think maybe call for a little bit more of a people group approach if that's your focus. Yeah. Whereas more broadly, or there may be a group of Somalis that you may engage through just more broader engagement through, you know, gospel outreach through uh, refugee communities or whatever it may be. So maybe we have to think about it in terms of like, as we look at this people group, is there some type of oppression that causes them to stick together in a unique way? Is there persecution? You know, like when I, where I served the people group we targeted, they were so isolated because of the cultural persecution 
that they did not interact with the majority church at all. And so they weren't going to get reached that way. Or, you know, in situations where they have a very protective culture, like you just mentioned with the Somalis, that would take a unique perspective. So I want to move on to another word that I'm not familiar with, but you've brought it up in some of your writings and and we've mentioned it, glurbanization. Okay. So what is glurbanization? Maybe I'm saying it wrong. And why is it something that missionaries should pay attention to? Yeah. So it, it does not originate with me. Um, it originates with a friend of mine, or at least in terms of missiological usage. Actually, I think there's some professor in Florida somewhere that started using the word. It's an awkward word to say. And it gets even more awkward when you say global because it just... I don't know. It, it, it's onomatopoeic. Yeah. So glurbanization is basically the recognition that the world is urbanizing and globalizing. And I think we used to always think of these things in separate categories without recognizing the ways that which they're melding together and influencing each other. And so it's not just that people are moving to cities but even rural people are being urbanized in ways. And so like we were during part of the the pandemic, we were living with my in-laws in a part of Alabama, right outside of a city area. And yet what was once very rural, I mean, people have developed habits that are quite urban in terms of going to coffee shops or in terms of just lifestyle choices. Uh, They've, taken on urban characteristics that they wouldn't have before. So it's it's a world that's coming together. At the same time, I think there has been some discussion that globalization is receding, but I think it's globalizing differently. And and so to explain that a little bit, I think because cell phone technology and and all of these things are so ubiquitous, you have choices of how you're globalized. So in the 80s and 90s, you know, McDonald's was sort of the sign of globalization. And so uh, McDonald's opening in Beijing was a, a big deal or in Moscow. But at this point, you have a choice to, if you're from Chennai in India, wherever you go, you can connect with the Tamilian world. And you have that choice to do so. And you may even find Tamilian fast food chains wherever you go. Or if, you know, K-pop, you can choose K-pop wherever you are in the world. There are kids learning Korean just because of Korean dramas and K-pop. And so you can almost choose your own globalization in a way. And that's, I think, affecting urbanization as well, because it's adding this new cultural nuance to the way people are gathering and, and how they're engaging in the city. How should missionaries care about this? I mean, yeah. not why should they, but like, how should they do something? Like, how does this impact our, our strategy and our task? Yeah, that's a good question and an important one. I, I think at the end of the day, the mission training paradigm, I may step on feet when I say this, but, or toes rather, I think we've overly relied on fixed ethnic characterizations. And I think we have to move beyond that. And, and I think it's, it's done a lot of harm in church life in, in a lot of different ways beyond missiological conversation. 
But I think when we do that, I mean, it's it's really just stereotyping is what we're doing. And so, like, when it comes to issues of contextualization, I think it gets a lot more complex because people, you know, for a few years, we've worked with Persian peoples and, you know, you're in Fremont with a lot of Persian peoples. Someone showed me this little little video clip of two Persian dudes, young, you know, they look like they work out pretty tough guys and they're listening to some some rap when they get in the car and they're just like, you know, serious faces kind of bouncing. And then suddenly a Persian song comes on the radio and suddenly they get all smiley and giggly almost. And I mean, it's all this just cultural influence. They're both things. Which one are they? They're one in one place and another in another place. And to say you should only like this kind of music, your worship music should only be like this. You should only be doing discipleship in your heart language. I think that's not the world we live in anymore. So the way I think about church planting in our city is that we, I'd rather think about languages, discipleship languages, and how do we plant churches in the languages that are spoken in the city, rather than thinking about people groups. Which is really where some of our friends at Radius, in the book that Chad and I co-wrote, we're making a shift from uh, talking about people groups to language groups. I think that that is helpful because ultimately you, you can't, contextualize along all of those sort of affinity lines, all you can really do is make sure you can speak to a person so as to be understood. But I'm curious, is is one of the other strategies that might be used acknowledging some of these realities is to think smaller, to think even more localized and to shift to maybe kind of a house church model in an urban context, because a lot have ad- advocated for that. Is that a solution? Does that have to do with some of the problems that you've identified? It certainly can be a solution. I'm a believer in house church. I think house churches are part of the answer, but I don't think my experience, and this is just what I'm going off of, is my experience in cities with house church is it hasn't gone that well, except in places where they don't have other options. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but where we've seen them thrive the most in cities is where there are limitations on their being able to gather in larger groups. Right. So one, one of the things that I've discovered, so, you know, that whole thing about trying to figure out how to engage cities, I don't think I'm there. I'm a long way from it, but it's sent me on this quest to try to understand better. And one of the things I've found is urban people are trained to be distrusting. Mm. We're just inundated with marketing all day long. And so our immediate responses to any kind of marketing is to shut it down. And so what that means is then we're going to be more trusting of something that has some institutional gravity to it, that we know we can trust that institution. So in just about any global city, you can go to the the popular downtown area, and there's going to be someone that's going to sidle up to you and say, Hey, I've got this phone. You know, it's an it's the newest iPhone. Do you want to buy it? Well, no, right? Because it's either stolen or it's fake or it's a stolen fake. You're not going to trust that dude, but you are going to go to an Apple store and you'll trust the Apple store with that phone. And I've seen the same thing with with church life, cults, 
are the ones that invite people into the immediately into the home because they can't set up the institutional thing. And so a lot of places there's been distrust for house churches because that's what cults do. And so if I was in a city, I talked to someone who was a church planter in formerly Soviet run city. And I can't remember which city it was, but that's what they said, you know, is, but they were being told by their, their supervisor that they needed to do house church and it was a frustrating experience for them. No one would would do it because they felt like, man, that's just not what we do here. That said, yeah. I do think house churches give the opportunity for, for those that can do that and meet that way. That's great. But we in cities, we need, I think, all kinds of churches to reach really diverse and complex population. So of everything that you're saying... You know, I, I consider myself someone who's decently informed on missiological issues. And I know you're challenging a few sacred calves, most of all the people group methodology that's really dominated since Ralph Winter and Donald McGavran. But beyond that, a lot of what you're saying doesn't sound that controversial. So is it or if not, why not? But but if it is, where are those points of disagreement that people have had? Because one of the questions we wanted to ask you is, is there unity in the missiological community on thinking about some of these issues of urbanization? It's kind of a facetious question. We know there isn't unity, but but really why? Is it is it just because we're so committed to, to thinking in terms of ethno-linguistic people groups and not just language groups? Are there other things at stake, do you think? I do think that is that is a major one. I think the missions world has been so successful in developing that unreached people group ethos that that is an immediate response. So I'm I'm pastoring an international church right now. And I think for a lot of people in the missions world, they would say, why in the world would you do that? What people group are you focusing on? You have to, you know, and then you get into UUPGs and that even takes the conversation even further in the wrong direction, in my opinion. So you want me to kick up a little bit of dust here? Well, yeah. Can we stop there real quick? So sure. UUPGs, for any listeners that might not be aware, unreached, unengaged people groups, right? So not only unreached as far as having less than 2% professing evangelical, which in theory we think means that there aren't enough local believers to evangelize the rest of the population, but unengaged in the sense that there are no known Christian works or workers there at all. So it's the most unreached of the unreached you could possibly say. Now explain why you think that that's thinking along the long line, wrong lines. It's creating targets for us that are accountable that I just don't mm. think are biblical. So an unengaged, unreached people group is simply an unreached people group that we don't have a logged engagement for. Um, so I've lived in a country where there is a large portion of the population that's very, very, very unreached. And then there are lots of little tiny tribes that are also, in terms of Joshua Project, listed as unreached. But I know for a mm -hmm. fact that the national church is doing more with those little tribes than they are with this massive people group that is very, very unreached. And so... I would say any group that's unreached 
is something that we should be focused on, whether they're engaged or not. Would you say because of urbanization, you know, it's possible that that as far as that ethno-linguistic people group goes, yeah, maybe there's not a logged engagement, but if they're speaking the trade language, the lingua franca, you know, if they're listening to rap in the car, right, they might, they might be exposed <laughs> to all sorts of other cultural avenues in which they could come into context with uh, contact rather with the gospel, maybe not in their heart language, but in a language. Is that also part of the equation for you? It is. I just think a lot of our people group information is probably not real accurate. I feel like we need to take a Sabbath from statistics in the missions world for a little while. That's good. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> just focus on preaching the gospel and making disciples, mm. and then evaluate, you know, where are the gaps? Who are we missing in this? Look around our cities and our towns and our villages and say, who's not worshiping among us? And how do we invite them in? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated situation because on the one hand, we needed a reemphasis on the fact that there were so many places in the world and people groups in the world that were not being targeted even. And in some ways, maybe we've become, I don't want to say victims of our own success, because I'm, I'm not at all saying that we've done such a great job of targeting the unreached, but we can, it's messy and it's complicated. And it we don't want to necessarily give up ground because we don't want to see uh, people stop targeting the unreached, but also we've seen the effects on the other side of like, wow, great ministries that were in their adolescence got abandoned too quickly and then they fell apart. Or people right. that are so hyper now focused on just a people group that they're ignoring huge opportunities for evangelism with people right in their neighborhood because they're so laser focused on one unique people group that they're not taking advantage of the opportunities that are in front of them. So it is it is complicated. It is messy. It is. And even within the whole people group ethnicity discussion, there are there's differences in those groups. I mean, there are some, as you've kind of highlighted earlier, or at least alluded to, and we could probably name some even here on the show that there are some people groups that they do because of their history, because of some of their background, because of of uh, the way their their culture and their history has shaped them are very insular. And it's right. really hard unless you're really targeting and focusing them. But then there's other groups that are very open. And so I like the discussion. I like what both of you guys were saying, because it is it's messy and it's complicated and missions is usually complicated and messy, but maybe by trying to be so laser focused, we've missed some of the obvious opportunities that we've had in front of us. I totally see the value in, you know, the hidden people's concept that Ralph winter came up with and why we needed to, to direct more resources, that direction, go to the, some of the places we haven't been focusing on. But I think where I got really frustrated was these lists of people groups and the numbers like, oh, we discovered 20 more unreached people groups within this people group. And it became almost like an addiction to to check them off lists. And I think a misreading of Matthew 24, 14 in terms of like us bringing yeah. bringing on the end and yeah. i i just yeah. think that is yeah. way out of our hands and we're just called i think yeah. the great commission calls us to take the gospel to everyone everywhere and i was struck yeah. in particular and this is 
the, the one article I wrote relating to people groups is that even the most missions minded of New Testament scholars, none of the New Testament scholars actually deal with ethnos as people group. Even D.A. Carson, who is, you know, friends with John Piper, he doesn't take the John Piper route in terms of how, how they interpret that passage. And so I think that to me says something that we've been, we've been scooting down. I, and I think part of it is just that ethne sounds a whole lot like ethnic. And we've just allowed that to, to guide us down a road that maybe wasn't so, so helpful. Sorry, Alex, I interrupted you. No, not at all. You're bringing up conversations we've had on the show before, but we need to constantly be resetting these things. Actually, the year that we wanted to attend T4G and couldn't because it was canceled, the pandemic year 2020, if you go back and listen to our webcast that we did with several people, including Brooks Buser and Darren Carlson, uh, who yeah. brought up some of the same commentaries and work from D.A. Carson that you mentioned, and kind of watched them go toe-to-toe -to -toe a little bit on what is an ethne or an ethnos, what is a people group and really arrived at a lot of the same conclusions that you did. And you, you can only press the, the grammar and the language so far. And, and I right. think even in that conversation, there was a recognition of the fact that, you know, that the gospel writer might not have necessarily meant this the exact same way that someone like Ralph Winter meant it. Sometimes we can make helpful distinctions in terms of strategy. And that's where you got at your point earlier. Let's look around. And once we've preached the gospel sufficiently and we really are preaching indiscriminately to all nations, then let's see who happens to be getting overlooked in that process yeah. and make sure that they're receiving a proportionate amount of attention. But that goes back to, though, making sure that we really are doing that, making sure that we're preaching the one gospel. Because my fear with some of these things is that if we're making distinction between 7,000 different ethno-linguistic people groups and really rigid distinctions between that number, that at some level in our hearts, and we would never say it this way, but at some level we start to believe that maybe that means then that there's 7,000 different gospels or ways that the gospel has to be presented. And that's not necessarily true. There's one gospel and it has to be contextualized, but there's also going to be very minute differences in how that does get presented. There really is one gospel and we can't go wrong if we emphasize that and then focus on how many different types of peoples do we have to address later on. Do, you, do you, either of you guys have any comments on that? Because I think that's the tendency of a lot of this hyper-contextualization that we see. I'd like to just make a comment and then let you respond to it, Michael. As you're saying that, Alex, I'm thinking of two completely different audiences. When one of us goes and speaks at a conference here in the United States and there's people that, you know, red, white, and blue all the time, you know, America is the, really the only country that matters in this world. The, the discussion of like, no, there's these people groups that are around the world that God loves that need to hear the gospel is an important message for them to hear. Yes, very true. But on the other side, when you're dealing with missionaries who are in the trenches, who are dealing with this stuff, maybe they're not thinking about it like in a scientific way, but they're they're living it. Maybe those categories are less helpful in that situation. It needs to be allowed to be a little sloppier, a little messier, a little more focused on gospel proclamation, a little less so on the, the parsing of which people group someone's a part of. I wonder if if we've made a mistake in taking a, a tool that's really helpful in mobilization and made it our missiological driver. A thought popped in my mind, so maybe it's a bad thought. Michael, 
you've thought about this more. Tell us where we're wrong or we're right or what you're thinking. I think that's one of the challenges in our world is how do you speak to the church broadly about this without it becoming something that becomes, I don't know, a, a string of policies that aren't helpful or donations that get directed in some unhealthy ways. Uh, that's the challenge is at the end of the day, the mobilization process also has to lead to good, good missiology. Not too long ago, we had a church approach us about three UUPGs that they knew were in our city due to the, you know, research websites that they had access to. They were categories of people groups that just didn't make sense for the city we're in. It was a messy thing. They're one of those groups I've never met anyone who identifies as that group, even though I've met people that would be mm. categorized that way. Or a few years back, one organization had the, the Chinese of Jakarta as an unreached people group. They're perhaps the most reached people group in Jakarta, but it's because the Chinese, you know, understanding a little bit of the context, the Chinese were forced to use the, the national language and had to not use Chinese during the right. communism scares in the 60s, that most of the Chinese worship in the national language and worship in churches that use the national language. So there are tons of Chinese that are Christians, they're just not in Chinese churches. And so some of our statistics, because we want people to fit into our categories. So I think that was a long way of saying um, yes and no. We need to speak in some ways that are simple enough to, for people to understand the, the broad world and where the needs are. At the same time, we have to be careful that it doesn't lead to a lot of money and resources going in directions that are not helpful. That's a good word. Yeah. And I think that we have that sort of carefulness and balance in the language that the Holy Spirit gives us in Matthew 28 and other passages, Pantatiathne, all the nations. So it's not it's not just the U.S. for your, your flag-waving crowd, right? It's, it's not just Israel, but it's also not so minutely distinguishing between all of these tribes. No, it's it's all the nations. It's this this raging, boiling sea of, of Gentiles as, as the Jewish mind would have conceived of it. And Jesus says, I have authority over all of this, over all of earth. And so I think scripture itself gives us helpful language there. And I, and I want to throw something out here as well for you guys to react to, uh, which is simply that it seems like some of those mobilization tools, again, those distinctions, those helpful distinctions, it really is this babble mindset, right? We're recognizing that the world is divided, that there's different tongues, there's different languages, and there's there's essential division. Not realizing necessarily that we're aiming towards Pentecost. We're aiming towards a church in which they're all incorporated, a church in which some of those walls and, and partitions, those separations, the language barriers do inevitably get broken down. Now, I'm not saying that global urbanization or globalization, that's terribly <laughs> difficult to say, but I'm not saying that urbanization is itself, you know, Pentecost today, right? And, and we only have the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to where we're truly, there's, there's total unity among the redeemed humanity at that point. But if God by his common grace is going to restore some unity to, to 
create avenues for the gospel to be communicated. I don't want to come in with a Babel mindset and assume that that's bad any more than in the first century you would reject the Pax Romana as bad and Roman roads as bad for communicating the gospel and getting the gospel out all over the Roman Empire. Well, God has ordained those things to be there to make it easier to spread the gospel. Let's not trip over ourselves and and create excuses to to not take advantage of those things that God's put in societies to allow the gospel to spread a little bit more easily. And maybe urbanization is one of those things. Am I completely off base here? No, not at all. When we lived in the Bay Area many moons ago, we worked with international students and uh, we had a, a lot of, at San Francisco State in particular, we had a lot of Japanese students and a fellow brother who was from Japan, a seminary student alongside us, he had noticed that there were kind of you know, to oversimplify, there were two kinds of Japanese students. There were those that came to study and they really intended to just remain as Japanese. They wanted to stay connected to the Japanese community. And there were others that came to America to study and they wanted to do all the America things, you know, baseball games and hot dogs and fireworks on the 4th of July and all, all those things. And so we started two Bible studies he started a, a really Japanese, let's enjoy Japanese culture Bible study. And then we started one that was, here, let's go to baseball games together, kind of. I mean, both studying the scriptures together, both seeking to give witness to who Christ is, but recognizing that there were Japanese that were in different different points in how they wanted to engage. And mm. what is that? It's... I think it's just recognizing that people are culturally unique. I think there's a lot more we could talk about with this. I would love to set up another time for us to talk about this idea of international church and how it's playing out in your context, even how it might relate to what what I feel like we're trying to do here in the Bay Area. Mm. And I think that could be a whole other discussion. But this this discussion has been stimulating. I hope our listeners find it that way. I think it's going to open up a whole lot more discussion and thoughts and questions. And uh, in the meantime, I hope you don't get hate mail for it. No more than usual. We sometimes do. It's okay. We survive. And, sometimes we uh, get hate mail from each other. Well, that's the most of the time. <laughs> the biggest disagreements usually are between Alex and I, not any of our listeners, because uh, I think they all agree with Alex. But anyway, uh, how can people get more in touch with you? How can people follow up? And where can they find more of your writing? Yeah, so I've written a, a couple of books that you can find on Amazon. They're the perfect thing if you're dealing with jet lag and having trouble sleeping, just open one of those and they'll put you right out. <laughs> the classic undersell. <laughs> so I'm director of Radius Global Cities Network, and I have some articles available on there along with articles and um, writings of others relating to engaging cities. And there's also a page in that website that's just city research. It's data. If you're a, a data nerd, I mean, it's the, it's the place to go to. So that's uh, radiusglobal.org. And so you can go there um, and you can find us. In fact, I think that's how you found me. Uh, you can find me through through that. Radiusglobal.org. Yes. With a, our, our true dedicated fans will understand that little joke there. <laughs> well, radiusglobal.org, though, is the place to get more from Michael Crane. And, Michael, we're so glad 
to have you here coming to us from Southeast Asia. So yes. thanks in advance to Tito, who's going to be editing this all together and taking out some of the pauses. <laughs> Love yes. you, Tito. Anyway, thank you for watching or listening to the Missions Podcast. We're grateful for you. The Missions Podcast, as you hopefully already know, is a ministry of ABWE. To get more information, go to abwe.org or go to missionspodcast.com for more content. And we value your support. You can go to missionspodcast.com slash support to join the team. Of course, remember to do all the great things that people do with podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. That stuff really helps. That's what these apps look at so that it gets in front of you and it can get in front of more people that can be blessed by it, especially those reviews in the Apple Podcasts store. Those really help us. Anyway, we're grateful for you. And until next week, thank you for watching and listening.